Good morning. Good morning. Keep getting closer and closer up here to me. <laughs> really able to park a car in the back of the class before long. We've got so much room back there. But I like the intimacy. I like I like you being close. I think some of our friends either went to the game or, and are still trying to get out. <laughs> or maybe they stayed up too late watching it. Uh, hope no one went to bed after the first quarter. Who's uh, a Tennessee fan anyway. I guess maybe you could hope the Virginia Tech fans went to sleep after the first quarter. Uh, well, thank you for getting up and being here if you stayed up late last night. Uh, I woke up to find out my power was off. I was a little disoriented. So uh, I took my shower in the dark this morning. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, was able, I think I was able to find the soap and the shampoo okay. So I think it's okay to still talk to me. Um, came on right as I was leaving. I don't know if it was just my neighborhood or, or what, but... I looked this week and realized today's the uh, 24th Sunday we've been dealing with the difficult sayings of Jesus almost half the year. Uh, I'm sure it seems longer than that to you, but uh, we've been we've been doing this for a while, and I'm I'm trying to bring it, or at least to begin to bring it to a close. I don't. I'm still trying to figure out. Um, how do you stop? Because it's not like we're going to run out of things that Jesus said that are distressing and challenging and difficult. Um, but we've been talking the last few weeks about the Sermon on the Mount, and it was made reference to today, if you heard Michael Lester uh, in the Journey Service, um, these difficult sayings of Jesus around, you have heard it said, I have said, but I tell you, um, including the one on loving your enemies, which was referenced today in the sermon in the journey service. Uh, when we're talking about this, uh, this sermon series that we've had for several weeks about the fear of the other. And Michael Lester uh, reminded us just how much we do live in fear. I mean, we, were, we lived in fear in some ways before 9-11, and, and certainly we live in more fear since then. In fact, I was reading a study last night that said that um, actually in the last five, people are more fearful now uh, about what about terrorism and more angry about 9-11 than they were five years ago. Um, there's been an increase in the fear and the anger, uh, primarily because just what's going on around the world and the assumption like it only seems like a matter of time before it happens here again, right? And so we find ourselves deeply, deeply fearful. And, um, and so it, it seems hard not to, to think about that today. And so Michael was calling us to, to think about it um, in light of Matthew 25 uh, and thinking about the fear of the stranger. And as I was thinking about what to reflect on uh, this week, um, I, I heard a poem that sort of crystallized 
for me what I was thinking about. And uh, I'm going to end with that. So I'll just let you know that's sort of helped me think about what I wanted to do today and how I wanted to think about it. Um, and so I'll, I'll end with that uh, later on this morning. Uh, but the poem uh, encouraged me to to think about us returning to a passage that we don't necessarily associate with the uh, difficult sayings of Jesus. I think when people uh, think about the difficult sayings of Jesus, uh, this is not one that ne necessarily make anybody's top ten. may not be on the list at all. Uh, not surprisingly, because we know the story so well, um, and I think I've taught on it at least once because it came up in the quarterly, uh, I have no idea when, a couple or three years ago probably. Um, and so we've talked about it. You've, many of you who've been in church all your life have probably heard uh, dozens of sermons on it, maybe dozens of Sunday school lessons on it. Um, it may be the, it's either the first or second most well-known parable of Jesus that we call uh, the so-called Good Samaritan, right? Um, and it's found in, in Luke chapter 10, if you want to go there. Um, you may not need to go there because, of course, we know the story, right? I mean, why do we need to look at it? Uh, we know the story. But I'd like us to take another look at this story, um, remind us of some things about the story that we certainly already know. But I want to think about this story. I was led to think about this story um, this week, um, again, as a result of this, this poem that kind of stopped me in my tracks and made me think of this uh, very familiar poem again, a very familiar parable again. And so let's, let's read it, and then we'll go back through it. You, you know it. Um, in fact, I think if we know it so well, we won't even read the whole, we'll just talk about it as we go, because it's not as though you're unfamiliar with it, but we'll just, we'll pause as we go and just to remind you of some things, um, and then we'll try to think about what, if anything, uh, this might have to say to us today. So this is Matthew 10, beginning at verse 25. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. So this teacher of the law, student of the law, um, most people back in Jesus' day, you know, weren't literate in the way that we sort of expect it to be, and so they had uh, people who uh, were learned, and they, you know, they wrote up contracts, did all kinds of simple legal things, and so there's a sense in which this person is a, a kind of lawyer. It's not wrong to call him a lawyer. And so he comes to Jesus and he's asking this question. Um, and Jesus, not surprisingly, asks him, turns the question around. How many times have we seen that? 
uh, over the past uh, several weeks. When someone comes to Jesus to test him, uh, it's, it's rare for Jesus just to answer straight up. Uh, usually Jesus turns the table and asks them a question. And what's interesting here is uh, the lawyer uh, sort of puts together, you know, what must I do to, one of the challenges here is when he asks, what must I do to eternal life? We think he's asking, what do I need to do to go to heaven? That's how we sort of translate that in 21st century America. That's probably not what he's asking. Um, that's not what that phrase would have meant in Jesus's day. He's asking, you know, how do I, how do I enter into the life of God? Um, he'd probably heard about Jesus preaching about the kingdom. It's like, how, how do I enter into that kind of life? Because uh, notice Jesus says, you know, if you do this, you'll live, right? I mean, he's talking about like right now, not just in the future. Um, so how, how do I really live? And, it, and he asks him, he says, well, what, you know, what's, what's the law say? Like, what's written in the law? I mean, you're a lawyer, right? You're, you're, you're a student of the law. So what's the law say? What, what's written there? And he gives a good answer. I mean, he, he pulls together from two places, from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, two passages um, about loving God and loving neighbor. Uh, in fact, they're so closely tied together, he doesn't even have to repeat the verb in the second one. He just says to love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. Right? So the same love. And so that's in, and Jesus says, that's the right answer. I mean, like it says, do that and live. Right? Uh, the point isn't just to know the right answer. Right? Uh, it's not just to know what it means to enter the life of God. It means to do it. Do that. You've answered well. Do that and you'll live. Trying really hard not to do lawyer jokes here. <laughs> not looking at anybody. But the story goes on. He's, been, he's just been affirmed by Jesus that he's got the right answer. He's been told what to do about it. But verse 29 says, But wanting to justify himself, this is the lawyer, he asked Jesus, And, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Wanting to justify himself. Right? Wanting wanting to show himself righteous and just before Jesus. He asked Jesus, but, but who, who is my neighbor? Because he wants to show Jesus this. He's asking a complicated question here. This, this was much debated in Jesus' day. So this is sort of a, a common uh, lawyer issue, a common legal issue in the law. Because again, if we said before, the, the law doesn't interpret itself. All lawyers know this, right? The, the Constitution doesn't interpret itself. I mean, we know this. Um, it, it has to be interpreted, and there's, there's disagreements. And so the question was, okay, we're commanded to, to love your neighbor as yourself, but who's, who counts as a neighbor? I mean, you've got to figure that out. I mean, if you're going to keep that command, you've got to know, well, who's the neighbor? 
Where, where are the boundaries? So, so who is my neighbor? And different <coughs> schools of thought in, in Jewish tradition thought about this differently, right? Some of them thought it was just other uh, kindred people, other Jews, right? That you, you're, those in close proximity to you. Um, others thought, I mean, he's quoting Leviticus 19 here about love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer uh, may know that just in a few verses after in Leviticus 19 is a verse that Michael Lester actually uh, quoted today in the past that talks about that, you'll, that you also are called to love and take care of the alien in your midst. So there are those who thought, well, maybe... Maybe that circle of who's my neighbor, maybe that goes out just a little bit further, those who are strangers who are living in our, our neighborhood, right? Um, who are a little bit different than we are, but they're, they're assimilating. They're the alien, but they're assimilating. And so may, maybe that's who my neighbor is. And so there were a lot, this is a, this is a big disagreement, a big conversation. So, so lawyers want to know, okay, Rabbi Jesus, uh, how about you weigh in on this? Okay, how about you weigh in on this? And he may, he may have been wondering this because he's not unfamiliar uh, with the people Jesus hangs out with, which is pretty sketchy people, right? Uh, many of the Jews thought, you know, that your neighbor didn't include even Jewish people who were either collaborators with the Romans. Remember, this is the Jews are living under Roman occupation at the time. So if you were an informant or a collaborator, or if you were a person who was unrighteous, that, that maybe you, you weren't the neighbor either. But Jesus is hanging out with a lot of those people. So it may be that the lawyer's asking Jesus' questions because like, you know, I have a hunch how maybe you're thinking about this, and I really want you to come clean on this. Like, who? How are you drawing the boundary here, Jesus? Who? Who? Who is the neighbor that we're commanded to love? And so, so Jesus responds, and it's unfortunate here we miss. It's often left and uh, translated, uh, but in the Greek here. Uh, I mean, most of your translations in verse 30 just says, Jesus replied. But really in the Greek, it more says like, Jesus accepted the challenge. It's like, game on. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's, what, that's, that's really what it's saying, uh, which I kind of like a lot. I, I don't know why we just say, Jesus replied. I mean, something's really lost there. I mean, Jesus sees the challenge here. And it's like, okay. Hey, young whippersnapper, get, get game on. And as an answer to that, that Jesus tells this well-known parable. So Jesus accepted the challenge. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, the road from Jerusalem, remember Jerusalem's on a mount, right? I mean, the, the temple's on a mount. Um, 
And Jericho is down towards the Dead Sea, which you know is below sea level, right? It's the lowest spot on the earth. So th this is, it's about an 18 mile trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it, it descends about 3,300 feet. So going down and coming up, that, that's, that's a, it's a long, it's a long way, and it's you're, it says it's going down or coming up. I mean, people who are coming up, it was a, a common way, um, and one of the reasons it's a common way um, is because I don't have a map here, and if I did, you wouldn't be able to see it anyway. But just to remind yourself that Galilee, where Jesus grew up, is in the north. Samaria is in the middle. And then Judea, where Jerusalem is, is down here. And the Samaritans, as you recall, were, were not liked. And people would actually go out of the way. If you're traveling from Galilee to Judea, going to Jerusalem, you would go, and there are people doing this by foot more times than not, people would go around Samaria all the way down to Jericho, then come up this road in the back way to get to Jerusalem. It's really out of the way, and you're taking this torturous and very dangerous road. Very dangerous road. In fact, uh, in Arabic, parts of this road are called uh, the, the way of blood. Right? Um, some people think it was think it was partly because it had red stone, but other people think you know. And also, it was just a nasty place, because because it was such elevation. I mean, we have hikers in the room. You, you've long time Appalachian folks. I mean, you don't just do thirteen hundred feet straight up. I mean, you got switchbacks, right? So you got these sharp turns, and every one of those sharp turns in this arid, rocky place is an opportunity for someone to hang out and lay in wait for, for travelers, people tra particularly people traveling alone. And so this seems to be this, the situation in which Jesus is imagining, right? That a man was going down. We don't know who he is. We're assuming he's Jewish. We don't know for sure. He's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So he's descending this long, dangerous route. And he fell into the hands of bandits or robbers, stripped him, beat him, went away, left him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. So he's also going down the road. It's possible that uh, he's been serving in the temple, right? He's got a little sabbatical. Just leaving town for a few days. You know the feeling, right? You've worked hard uh, heading out of town. Um, so he's heading down that road. And it says, when he saw the man, it's important, he, he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Um, we don't know why. We can, we can speculate, right? Um, priests are prohibited in the law to to touch dead bodies. It defiles them, makes them unholy. So we, we're trying to be charitable. We might think that's what it is. Um, he might have thought like you thought. I mean, this is danger. He was reminded how dangerous it is, right? 
Um, a lot of us have been taught to, to be suspicious of people who on the side of the road who look like they need help. Right, because you've heard stories of people who pretended to need help in order to take take uh, advantage of people's generosity, right? And so, uh, you wouldn't um, wouldn't blame you if at least once in your life you you pass somebody by the side of the road and you had this you, you wondered, does that person really need help? Um, plus, the priest might have actually been putting himself in danger. Right? I mean, it's to stop and help a person who's been left beaten and left for half dead. You think, well, you know, I don't want to linger here. This is a dangerous place. So it passes by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he also sees him, pass by on the other side. Now, you may recall the Levites um, also worked in the temple. Um, they were sort of the, the gophers in the temple, did all kinds of menial tasks, um, including one of the things they likely did uh, was, was keep people out of the inner courts of the temple who didn't belong there, right? who, who, who weren't Jewish enough to be there. So they were, you know, sort of, uh, some of them served as sort of the bouncers of the temple, right? Um, and some of the people they would have kept out were Samaritans. Um, you recall the Samaritans were, were much despised by real Jews uh, for a couple of reasons, at least. Um, there was a kind of ethnic identity issue. Uh, the Samaritans had, during uh, the exile, uh, during uh, the exile, had had intermarried, right, with non-Jewish people, and so they were considered sort of half-bloods, right? Um, not pure Jews, half-breeds, and so. They were, they were despised because the Samaritans were seen to have been those who have, have sort of thrown away their Jewish heritage. So there's, there's that sort of ethnic issue. They, were, they thought of themselves as the children of Abraham, but self-respecting Jews didn't consider them to be such. There's also a kind of religious debate going on. They, because they were excluded from the Jerusalem temple, they had their, their own shrine, their own temple uh, in, in their neck of the woods. And Jews thought this, you know, blasphemous to have another site in that region dedicated, that was almost like a rival temple. So th these folks don't get along. Jews were raised to hate the Samaritans, and the Samaritans were, hate, were raised to despise the Jews. It went both ways. It went both ways. Uh, Samaritans didn't have uh, much um, to do with you know, Jews either. Um, you may recall in the, in the previous chapter in Luke, I mean, 
Jesus is is traveling in Samaria, Samaria, and they don't receive a very warm welcome. And the, this is where the disciples want to to have fire rain down on the Samaritans, right? For for their lack of hospitality. Um, so that's the Levite, and and now comes the part that we all remember. But we've talked when we've talked about parables, we've been reminded that. Uh, Jesus' parables are, are meant to arrest us, to stop us in our tracks, to disturb us, to uh, open our eyes, to help us see, uh, but to also to disorient us. And here comes the most disorienting part of Jesus' parable. But, in verse 33, Jesus says, But a Samaritan... But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. Now, I think it's interesting the way that Luke writes that. Notice the first thing Luke says is not that he saw him. It says he he drew near to him. And in seeing him then, right, drew near enough to actually see him, he was moved with compassion. Now this word compassion is an interesting one in the Gospels. Uh, It's only ever used of Jesus or Jesus talking about someone else. But it's never used by, by Luke to talk about somebody other than Jesus. Okay. So no other, no other people are, are said to have compassion unless it's Jesus or Jesus is referring to telling a story in which somebody else has compassion. So it's, it's a pretty narrow, narrowly used word. This notion of being moved deeply. And it always moves somebody to action. It's never, it's never the end. It's not like Moved with compassion. Okay. I felt compassion. I felt pity. That's, that's the right response. It's, it's, it's a verb. It's also, we think of compassion as a noun, but this is a verb. He's, he's moved with compassion. And he went to him, because he's moved with compassion, he went to him and did these very specific things as an act, as a response to his compassion. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Oil and wine, those were the medicines of the day. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn. Now this is not, you know, the Carnegie. Um, This is a very simple place that just, all they offered was some straw to lay on and water. Okay, uh, and, and, and we know of one. We found uh, one on the, the Jericho Road, so we know that they, they existed. They're very small, humble places. Took him to an inn and took care of him. So he takes him there, gives him a place to rest, and he stays there and takes care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii. You remember a denarius is a day's wage. He took out two days' wages, and he gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and when I come back, 
I will repay you whatever more you spend. Okay. So pretty, pretty extraordinary act of compassion here. Again, we have to remind ourselves the Samaritan is, is risking his own safety. It's a dangerous place. There's no reason that he thinks in pausing to take care of this man or in transporting him that he's not placing himself in danger. Clearly, he is. And he goes to great trouble. Right? Um, all of you have had days that started off different than what you thought they were going to start off. When you get to the end of the day, you think, that's not how I thought the day was going to go. Right? I had one of those this week. Tuesday morning, I got up and went downstairs to exercise and quickly discovered the basement had an inch of water in it. Everywhere, 1,300 square feet covered with an inch of water. Water heater broken to the night and just poured out hundreds of gallons of water everywhere. So, in an hour or so, I had to go to school and teach all day. You know, so I'm like, you know, so. So in between classes, I'm calling plumbers, I'm calling insurance agents, I'm calling, um, yeah, the people to get the water out of the basement. Right? I don't really want to float a canoe in the basement. Um, so it wasn't a big deal. In the, in the big picture, it's not a big deal, right? No one, it's not Louisiana, right? I didn't have three feet of mud in my basement. No one had to rescue me from the roof. Just a small irritation. But it just made the day turn out differently. This man had a day unlike the one he planned. He was just traveling on the road. And he could have just gone on with his day. Right? He could have just gone on with his day. But the way Jesus tells the story, he doesn't. Right? He, he is inconvenienced at best, but willing to risk his own safety. And I think that's the part that's easy to forget. He's willing to risk his own safety for a man that he's been taught to hate his own life and he is pretty sure hates him. Right? Jesus continues, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Now, I know you caught this because you're a clever bunch and you've heard this story a lot of times, but just to remind ourselves, note that Jesus is not answering the question directly. This man asks, where's the boundary? Who is my neighbor? And behind that question is the assumption there are some non-neighbors. So where do you draw the line? Where do you draw the circle between the neighbor and the non-neighbor? That's the question he wants to know. Notice Jesus doesn't ask, answer that. He says, which one was a neighbor? You got that? Which one was a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? We don't have it in the text, but it's hard not to imagine that the lawyer doesn't sort of swallow really hard here. 
because he has just gotten the gold star for saying what is commanded. And so he has to say what he doesn't want to say. He, you know, he wants, he, he's going to have to put together two things he can't put together in his head. And that is that there is a righteous Samaritan. There is a Samaritan who's done what the law commands. These people who are half-breeds and are despised and who we have nothing to do with. So, but he knows that's what he has to say. And so the lawyer says, notice he doesn't say the Samaritan. <laughs> he can't say it. He doesn't say the Samaritan was the one. He says the one who showed him mercy. That's the best he can do. <laughs> right? The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. In other words, go be the Samaritan. Oh, ouch. Go, go try to be as righteous. You were trying to justify yourself, trying to be righteous in my eyes. Go try to be as righteous as this Samaritan who you despise and yet whose righteousness exceeds your own, who isn't drawing circles, <coughs> distinguishing between the neighbor and the non-neighbor in the way that you so easily do. It's hard for me this week not to think about how much after 9-11 and particularly in the last few years with the, the Syrian refugee crisis and refugee issues all around, how we have made certain people around the world non-neighbors, right? Um, I feel with some confidence, maybe I'm mistaken here, I feel with some confidence if Jesus was standing here today saying this parable, it wouldn't be the Samaritan, it would be the Muslim, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? It just seems like it would be. It would be the one that we fear, the one that we're, we find so easy to put outside the circle of the neighbor. Uh, that we're afraid of, that is somehow less than us, that we don't know what to do with. We're afraid, right? Uh, we don't know what to do with all these refugees. And on this day when we rightly remember over 3,000 people who lost their lives, it's so, it's so easy to make our pain worse than everybody else's pain, right? Do we realize that in, in Syria, in the last four to five years, four, over a half a million people have died, have died, over half a million. 
Four to five million people are refugees, have left Syria. They're so afraid. They're afraid. ISIS is attacking them. ISIS has killed more Muslims than non-Muslims. Right? They're also afraid of their own regime, which is dropping barrel bombs and poisonous gas on their own people. They're getting it from both sides. If you want to know, you may not want to know. If you want to know, just go online and look at some of the, the movies and photographs of what were cities in Syria that look like they have been destroyed by atomic weapons. They're just nothing more than rubble. People are fleeing that. And yet, we feel afraid of these people. <laughs> Right? I feel sure 10 or 20, 30 years from now, we'll look back on this and thinking, what were we thinking? These people were in need. They were lying on the side of the road. And we were afraid. We were afraid. And under we understand why we're afraid. Just like the man on the man on the road, the Samaritan on the road. It wasn't like he wasn't afraid. He was afraid, but the question is, what do you do with that fear? Right? It's not as if he was stupid to be afraid. No, he could have gotten hurt. Right? He could have. Right? But he didn't let that paralyze him. So what I heard this week was a poem by a woman named Naomi Shahab Nye. Now before I read the poem to end, I, I want to tell you just a little bit about her because it, it makes a lot more sense, the poem. Uh, Naomi Shahab Nye is herself an Arab-American. Uh, her mother uh, was from St. Louis. Uh, her father is Palestinian. He's Palestinian-Arab. Uh, she's grew up most of her life here, uh, but she's still an Arab-American. Uh, and in fact, she spent a lot of her early childhood in Ferguson, Missouri. <laughs> so it's, it's been interesting to hear her talk about um, these two places that she's from, Ferguson, Missouri, and Palestine, and the similarities and the ways in which uh, violence and vulnerability uh, are everywhere there. Um, but she talks about um, a situation that happened to her and her husband. Um, they had just been married in Texas, and they had decided they were going to travel some in the South American country of Colombia. And so they went to Colombia, and in the first, at the end of the first week that they were there, um, they were on a bus, and the, the passengers on the bus, the bus was stopped, and, and they were, everybody on the bus was robbed, including them. Everything was taken all their money, their passports, their papers, everything. And another person on the bus, a man of Indian descent, was actually killed in the robbery. And so the bus, after this happens, the bus continues on to the town of their destination. They're getting off and they're just bewildered. They're obviously distressed. They don't know what to do. They don't have, they have no money, they have no papers. I mean, what, what do you do next? They've just seen a man killed. What do you do? And she talks about an encounter they had, just an older gentleman who just, who, who could see the bewilderment and the distress in their faces and just, just 
stopped and asked what had happened and what was wrong. Was paying attention enough, had actually saw them enough to tell that they were upset and asked them and they told the story. And he just said, I'm so sorry. In Spanish, you know, I'm just so sorry that happened. And she was so moved just, just by that small act of kindness, just listening. When, they, when she was so disoriented, so distressed, they didn't know what they were going to do. And so her husband decided he would hitchhike to the next town over, which was a bigger town, to see if he could get some traveler's checks. Remember those things? Uh, to get some traveler's checks, maybe, and figure out what their next step was. And so she was left alone, which, again, kind of was unnerving. And so she sat in the plaza, pulled out her notebook. She's a poet. And she says this poem just came to her almost like she was dictating. She says the only time it's ever happened to her in her life. It's a powerful poem, but I think it resonates with the story today, and I want to leave you with it. And um, I know it's hard to hear a poem sometimes, but I have left some copies on the back table in case you want to look at it uh, yourself. And it's called Kindness. And I read this because it occurs to me that the... One of the reasons may be that the Samaritan in Jesus' story in our imagination is capable of stopping is because he knows what it's like to be on the outside. He knows what it's like to be vulnerable. He knows what it's like to be... You know, if you suffer, two things can happen when you suffer. And I think this is something to think about in light of 9-11. It can, it can soften you, right? Lots of you have gone through suffering, and you know, looking back on your life, it has softened you. It's made you more compassionate. You're attuned to other people's suffering in a way that you weren't, maybe. And it's true that suffering sometimes hardens us, right? We shut down, uh, get self-protective. Um, it looks like the Samaritan had suffered prejudice and hatred but it, it softens him enough to see another person in need. Here's what she writes, and it's called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow, 
You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Let's pray. God of grace and mercy and compassion. We give you thanks that you have seen us and drawn near to us in Jesus Christ. That you have suffered with us. That you do not stand loaf, aloof from our sorrow, but that you share it. We pray that you might soften our hearts, that you might take the sorrows that we have shared and experienced and use them to help us be empathic to those around us, to feel compassion for those in need. We pray that you might protect us from irrational fears, from paralyzing fear. And we pray ultimately that we might trust that as your spirit empowers us to walk the way of Jesus with its attendant risks, that we might trust that your way truly does lead to life. May we be bearers of that life in our daily lives. We pray this through Christ. Amen.